We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi. Okay. That's strange. We're getting very strange echoes and false starts on today's video show. So please bear with us and we'll try and get the connection right. That's a bit better, is it? Okay. Well, welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley. With me as usual, Joe Quinn. Hi there. And this week we're going to be looking back at a few recent events in uh, world politics. Notably, the event I want to begin with tonight is, mm, you could say it's the biggest news of the last couple of weeks. It doesn't really get the headlines like it used to. You'd think it would, given that it's been going on for 10, 15 years and is now, at least in theory, resolved. I'm speaking here of the Iranian nuclear power issue. Um, on April 3rd or so, a deal was more or less brokered after the umpteenth round of talks in Switzerland, whereby Iran agreed to uh, massively reduce its ambitions to enrich uranium for the use of nuclear energy, for civilian use of energy, in other words, power nuclear power plants, in return for a simultaneous reduction of sanctions, mainly U.S.-imposed sanctions, against Iran, which would be phased out as Iran's nuclear power comes online. So, is that it? Is that the end of 10 to 15 years of a number of calls of near Armageddon, where it seemed like at one point in 2008 especially, um, a major Western U.S.-led bombing war was going to hit Iran. It wasn't the only occasion, of course. And has it been resolved? Was it ever really such a big issue? Why was it such a big issue? With so many crises going on in the world, you think, you know, the potential of one particular um, action, in this case, Iran acquiring nuclear capabilities, maybe leading to another crisis later on, you think that would be lower down on the scale of priorities, given that there are actual crises with millions of people dying in them taking place. So what was it about this one that made it such a prolonged affair? And more importantly, why international cooperation is so uniformly of one mind on this. For all of the last year's Cold War hype between the USA and Russia, or East and West, if you want to put Russia together with China, they cooperate 
to the point of sending ministers, diplomats, representatives to these meetings on Iran, Iran as nuclear program. And there they are, you know, smiling for the camera. We're discussing important international business together. Mind you, tomorrow we're going to threaten to retaliate against each other. But today, here we are, smiling about this issue. We're cooperating. I don't understand this discrepancy. Joe, help me out here. Well, I think it speaks to the complete and utter duplicity and psychopathic nature of our political leaders, um, particularly in the West, since they're the ones who usually um, are the ones. They're the ones who are usually instigating wars, etc., and crises like this, and one. crises and threats against other countries and stuff. But it's amazing to see it. I mean, it, I think that example actually points directly to just how little the ordinary people of this world are are told or know about uh, what how the world really works and how what goes on behind the scenes type of thing. When, like you just said, for years, Iran has been the presented to the Western population as this dire threat. Oh, pariah state. And it's axis of evil, right? Remember? right? Exactly. It was the axis of evil. And then, you know, that, that goes on for at least, what, seven, eight years now or more, probably almost 10 years now. And then... Um, oh, it goes back to PNAC. Well, yeah. But I mean, in the last, you know, after 9-11, it was, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan and stuff. And then Iran was ushered in onto the scene type of thing around maybe 2005 and then 2007, you had the whole um, hostages, the British sailors who were captured on a, they were actually on a spying mission, but they claimed they were, the British claimed they were just in, you know, just having a little, little jaunt around the Persian Gulf, you know, and they were unceremoniously attacked and uh, captured by the Iranians. That's right, and there were American tourists as well mm. crossing from Iraq into Iran, who I think later were in some way are confirmed by the US to have been spies. Yeah, so they, um, you know, Iran was demonized and, and since then has been demonized and obviously Israel has been a major exponent of the bomb, 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 Iran, as John McCain said at one point, uh, in true diplomatic style. He's such a diplomat, that man. He sings about bombing Iran. It's so funny. It's kind of like, you know, Bush joking about the weapons of mass destruction or Obama um, talking about uh, predator drones, you know, jokingly saying they're gonna, he's gonna uh, send them after his uh, this boy band that his daughters like, etc. You know, it's all very funny, you know, death and mayhem is funny to them. So, um, yeah, the fact that, but you, first of all, the fact that they just, can just to spell out that, you know, for the, just just to be clear, that the what made this a critical issue was supposition that if Iran gets nuclear capabilities to make nuclear power plants, which all of the countries telling it can't do, have, mm-hmm. therefore Iran will start make, making nukes and therefore it will lob them at Israel ASAP. Right, exactly. Okay. Which is obviously nonsense because, you know, there's never been any any suggestion that Iran would do that, so they've had to uh, hype up the, uh, the crazy madness of the mullahs in Iran or whatever whatever way they describe them, you know, the crazies in Iran are going to bomb uh, everybody, and particularly Israel, as soon as they get the, the bomb, you know, when there's no reason to think that at all. 
And of course, the idea that Iran would make one bomb and then throw it at Israel and Israel has maybe 400 nukes or something like that, you know, uh, it would be an exercise in kind of self-destruction for Iran to do that. So, I mean, you really had to stretch to kind of buy into their narrative here that Iran was going to do this, that it had any, any intentions of, uh, you know, launching a nu- nuclear war against Israel or anybody else. So obviously there's something else going on behind the scenes there all along. There has been something else going on all along, and it kind of comes back to our old, our old friend Russia, really, and Eurasia, and kind of the geopolitics of all of that, in the sense that um, it's about <clears throat> the U.S. attempting to maintain control of that Middle Eastern region, um, primarily for oil. Um, as we've mentioned before, I think, you know, a deal was struck with the Saudis by the US in and mid 1970s to sell oil only, Middle Eastern oil only in dollars. It's called the petrodollar and it is a massive advantage to the US and the US economy that other countries, every other country, uh, most other countries around the world who need to buy oil have to, first of all, buy dollars, I buy a piece of paper. Um, and for that, they usually exchange goods, tangible assets for those pieces of paper from the U.S. The U.S. gets a free ride, essentially. And so they buy these dollars then to then buy oil from Middle Eastern countries. So Saudi, they struck this deal with Saudi Arabia in the mid-1970s to create this petrodollar. And the Saudis then in their, in their OPEC organization, they kind of encouraged or uh, other oil-producing, oil-exporting countries in the Middle East uh, to do the same. So they all got together, OPEC got together, mainly uh, Arab oil-producing, oil-exporting countries uh, to sell only in dollars uh, as a deal with the U.S., you know, and they got lots of kickbacks from the U.S. for that. So that's a major advantage. Um, Iran, just in terms of, I mean, there's a few, in terms of oil, there's a few things that people need to understand about oil. Uh, there's more or less, I think there's four different there's four different parameters about oil. Um, one is the amount of oil, or the, say the top ten, or the, the the list of oil producing countries. Uh, that's just countries that can produce oil. The second one is uh, countries a country's oil consumption. So you can be a country that produces oil. But your consumption can be uh, can exceed your production or be less than your production. So you can be self-sufficient in oil if you produce your own and you don't need as much as you produce. That makes you an oil exporting country. So you would have extra left over to sell around the world. And that's a, that's the third one: uh, oil exporting countries or the oil exports. And then the fourth one is oil importing. Obviously, countries that need to buy the oil. Uh, from because they don't have any themselves, or they only have enough. They don't have enough to cover their their consumption. So on that on those lists, Iran is basically number three in the world. I think um, uh, I don't actually have it here, but um, yeah, Iran is the third largest oil producing country. Actually, uh, oil exporting, not production. Oil exporting. That means it produces more than it needs. It can be an exporting country. Uh, the top is Saudi Arabia. Second is Russia. 
and third is Iran. So Iran's right there in the top three uh, in terms of countries in the world that have oil that they can sell. The U.S. needs a lot of oil. It produces uh, about nine billion. Uh, is it nine billion? No, nine million. Sorry, nine million barrels per day. Uh, but it needs almost nineteen. So it needs to import almost ten million barrels of oil a day from somewhere. And if you do the kind of math between the the countries that need this oil need to import oil into their countries to, for their economies, basically. This is what makes countries great, right? This is what makes these countries developed nations is that they have the oil to tool up their industry and stuff. Compared, I mean, some Western European or America or other first world, as they call it, country with like countries in Africa and stuff, what you notice is that there's a lot uh, in terms of the infrastructure and the, the buildings and the uh, basically the, the, the facilities or the resources required to make a country a first world country is that it has lots of infrastructure, right? Lots of uh, um, lots of buildings, lots of roads, uh, um, and, and factories and facilities to grease the wheels of industry and make it a strong country that it you know produces things. <clears throat> Obviously, a lot of African countries don't, relatively speaking, or impoverished in that way. And those are the countries that basically have been kept that way because they haven't been given access, among other things, to to oil, because the oil is the oil that's available is mostly sucked up by Western European uh, or let's say you know EU countries and America and Canada and Australia and Japan um, and China primarily. There are very few countries. If you look at the list, there's there's a relatively small number of countries, and these are all the world leaders type things, the big industrialized countries in the world. They're the ones that eat all the oil, basically. So the point of all this is that a major um, reason for this focus on Iran is Iran's position uh, potentially as a key player in the uh, in making oil available. And if it was to restrict that or to use oil essentially as sanctions to to, to turn the tables on a certain maybe the US or the EU or whoever buys Iran's oil to turn the tables on them and say we're not selling the oil to you, you know. Or we have uh, China, for example. Iran does a lot of uh, sells a, does a lot of business and sells an awful lot of, of its oil to China. And uh, obviously, these are, these things are very are are, are um, this, this idea of availability of oil is extremely important to America and to uh, Western European countries. Um, so. When the Iranian diplomats, their foreign minister, for example, is there in Switzerland meeting his uh, counterpart from the UK, the US, I can understand that they would have the same party line going mm. into the meetings. But then there's also his Chinese counterpart, mm. the Russian, French and German, I believe. They are all skirting around the issue by pretending that this is the issue. Mm. Iran's nuclear program, how fast it can develop, mm. under what conditions and terms, and et cetera, et cetera. It's like there's an unspoken acknowledgement going on for a decade now that we're all going to pretend that this is really the issue, mm -hmm. but actually it's something else. 
You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So in some in some respect, China, for example, has an interest in this in the outcome of Iran's nuclear program to be. Mm-hmm. But it isn't the nuclear program that it's interested in. No, it's the <clears throat> share of the spoils of Iran's vast resources in no, oil. It's basically being able to do business with Iran. Uh, to not have Iran bombed on some kind of trumped-up pretext mm-hmm. that it's going to... We want to be uh, in, the, as the Brits said about the um, New Asian Development Bank, I'm speaking as here as a mm-hmm. Chinese representative, we would like to be in on the ground floor when this deal is brokered. Mm-hmm. Not because we give a damn about the actual issue. That's the British representative, yeah. That's what he said, yes, about the yeah. New Asian Bank set up by China. Yeah. But the, the the concept I'm getting at, the, the British government doesn't care about uh, the distribution of development funds to projects no. in China, per se, or into, into Central Asia. It wants to be in on the ground floor to try and control how it goes. But that's direct how it goes. Well, it's futile because, I mean, they're not going to be allowed to do that. You know, the reason the IMF has... Over the years, IMF and the World Bank, for example, has uh, largely served Western interests and Western uh, political strategies and objectives is because it's controlled by Western, by the US and by Western European individuals and countries. Uh, so the same applies when they've set up a rival, uh, rival to the IMF or rival to the World Bank, the, the Chinese have... Uh, for the specific purpose of controlling that themselves. It doesn't matter if you get in. They'll have the same position as China, for example, has. This, the, the British will have the same say in the new Asian Development Bank as the Chinese have with the IMF because they're underlings. They're not, you didn't start this. It's our bank. It's our It's our deal. So you can come in if you like, but not gonna, I can't imagine they're going to have any any say, you know. So the whole, the whole point about Iran here is, yeah, that... Um, the tables have been slowly turning over the past, like we said, maybe 10 years. I mean, they've been demonizing Iran, trying to put pressure on Iran. That's a way just to try and strong them, strong arm them or to twist their arms into... It's a battle for control over Iran and its resources, essentially. And they've tried for many years to threaten them. And Israel has been the attack dog in the Middle East, you know, threatening Iran with invasion. And, you know, and the U.S. would have been... Well, probably would have been there at some point as well if, if they had gone ahead with it. And now it's kind of turned a little bit. <clears throat> it turned when the when Ahmadinejad, the last uh, uh, president, uh, resigned or left, and uh, this new guy came in, and he and suddenly you saw this change in attitude from the West. We can do business here. Yeah. This was like in 2012, wasn't it? Or 2013, maybe 2012. Mm. <clears throat> so and, suddenly David Cameron is meeting Iran's leader, whereas yeah. four years ago that would have been unheard right. of. Right. So uh, I think what, what changed there was that they saw that uh, the march of Russia and China in particular and the, the business connections and deals that they had been making with Iran were already a kind of a done deal and there wasn't going to be, you know, it's almost as if saner heads prevailed in that sense, or they simply saw the writing on the wall uh, and they realized that they had to, it was no longer my way, the highway, it was now that they're going, they were now going to have to uh, engage in in sweeteners and other diplomatic overtures to try and uh, get, yeah. what they, get what they wanted to get previously through threats, um, which is to stop uh, Iran joining a kind of a Eurasian kind of integration 
uh, and, and integration of Eurasian countries. And um, yeah, this thing, I mean, it's the old problem of whenever you rule something completely, when you own and control a situation and are getting all the best cuts type of thing from, from a certain situation, um, it makes you very uh, nervous and anxious when you see that you know, your, your, your control in that situation is, is slipping away, you know, and, and you get a bit desperate and, you know, I mean, but that's a problem, a, a perennial problem for people who try to control everything, you know, completely themselves or you can only go on for so long until the wind starts to change and, and, um, yeah, but it's, it's kind of interesting because there's about among, amongst the top 10, you know, you notice with these oil consumption that the world's biggest consumers of oil are all the main industrialized nations, right? There's no Angolas in there or kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> some, uh, or you know, Tanzania or, or, or some other, you know, second or third world countries. They, they don't consume, even if they have a large population, even the percentage, you know, per capita type thing, it, it does not compare at all, you know, even if that's smaller populations. Um, I mean, the U.S. consumes, as an example, the U.S. consumes twice as much oil as China does. But China has four times the population. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nothing to do with number of people here. It's about being an energy hog, essentially, you know, um, and living the high life from an industrialization point of view at the expense of other people. All the goodies for me and whatever scraps are left, the rest you can have them. You know, and there's this clique of... of of countries that, that that are engaged in that and consuming all of the oil. And the problem is that um, it's interesting just to compare, compare those list of, say, top 10 or 15 consumers of oil with all these major, the richest nations in the world. And then you have the top 10 or 15 exporters. You know, and if you, and, and once you get down below that, you're getting into countries that don't produce very much at all, you know, produce only a fraction of what the last 30, 20 or 30 countries, say it's a list of uh, 40 oil producing countries in the world, the last 30 produce only a fraction of what the top 10 do, you know, so it's the top 10 or 15 that are very important, you know. And if you look at those top 10 or 15, they're the ones that all of the, uh, most of those countries are the ones that the, these uh, richest nations in the world that consume all the oil, they're the ones that are, they're, they're buddy-buddy with each other type thing. You know, we're talking Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, um, obviously the U.S. produces its own. It gets a bit complicated, but the point being that the top 10 or 15 industrialized richest nations in the world need uh, more or less all of the oil that's currently produced. That's available for export by these other countries. And, and like we said, the major exporters are top of the list is Saudi Arabia, then Russia, then Iran. Um, so any of those that were taken away, if you remove Russia from the equation or remove Iran or have you know them move off into their own little group and, and start... You know, essentially using the resources as sanctions, uh, it's very bad for these West top you know, richest Western countries because their their whole nation and industry is greased with with oil, and um, so it's very important. And Iran, in that respect, is very important. You know, yeah. And, and up until now, over the past twenty, thirty, forty years, they've been able to 
you know, years ago, 50, 60 years ago, it was British Petroleum that basically owned Iranian oil. But that's no longer the case. And with backers like Russia and China now, the whole situation is very different. The, you know, the Brits and the Americans, the Anglo-American Empire can no longer dictate. They don't have a death grip, basically, on, on oil producing countries. They can't call the shots no matter what happens. It's The wind is changing and they're afraid that uh, that they'll be cut off, that there'll be that there is a possibility that certain countries in the world could decide, well, listen, we have enough customers for our oil that we don't need to sell to you. So let's and, call And it, we can get good terms for them. We're no longer reliant on getting dollar payments right, for them. Let's call it sanctions. You're not getting any oil. Uh, that would be hard for That's interesting the sanction what maker. What began uh, then, what began as a lever to use against Iran, much in the same way as you bash countries for their human rights record or the, the quality of their elections mm. or something, they would bash Iran for its nuclear program. But now, with the tables turning, they're having to close the deal on it and say, sort of, follow the charade through to its logical conclusion mm. and actually say, oh, well, I guess things are better now, so we're just going to tie this up. But it's still part of the charade. Originally, it was the lever, and now it's, you see, Iran is normal. We're normalizing relations, and they're mm. coming into, uh, they're, they're, they're less of a pariah state now. They're no longer in the axis of evil. They're on the axis of maybe, or, yeah. or whatever they come up with. The axis of naughty. But it, I tell you, it's producing some bizarre... Uh, contradictions that would to start with inside Iran the reaction is at least as it's being as it's being mediatized or broadcast to Iranians they were out on the street celebrating at the news so they're all sort of in on the charade as well Mm -hmm. Um, okay so you've got to give your masses a story okay so they follow the story and it's a good thing for Iran it means we're on the up okay well I wouldn't underestimate the the extent to which uh, Iranian people know they may, be, they, they may be they're celebrating on the streets, but they're not necessarily celebrating for for what the okay. official story is. They're not celebrating that oh, they're going to let us have a, a nuclear a nu- nuclear program. Um, they're maybe they re- they know what's going on behind the scenes, and they know that this is effectively a, a victory, uh, a backing down by the West from their aggressive "you'll do what we say or else" stance to uh, to okay, let's do some deals here, let's do some business. And, and, you know, Iran has been sanctioned and repeatedly over the past 10 or 15 years um, by the West, and that's taken a bit of a toll, but not not a lot, I don't think, on on, on Iran and the Iranian people. But in the past, you know, in during that period of time, uh, both China and Russia have strengthened their ties with Iran and have made those, made the impact of those American sanctions um, much more bearable. And it's continuing, and it's getting to the point now where those American sanctions uh, don't really matter anymore. The, America has stopped, or is going to the point of calling for or, or, or getting rid of sanctions on Iran, not because they're being magnanimous and, and uh, you know very very good uh, diplomats. It's because or they've, or they've turned a new leaf. It's because their sanctions don't work anymore. But rather than say we our sanctions have run their course and we've been screwed over, basically we can't. We can't beat them with a stick anymore. They'll try and spin it into diplomacy and look how peaceful, peace-loving we are, and we want to be friends with Iran and stuff. That's bullshit. The reason they're, they're doing it is because they've been forced to do it because of Iran's uh, development of ties and business deals, and particularly uh, 
resource deals with China and Russia. Okay. And at the same time, it's all nicey, nicey smiles for the camera in Lausanne, Switzerland. And yet, at the same time, this other conflict between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, Iran has been accused out of the blue, as it seems, of being the backer of the Houthi rebels in Yemen yep. on the basis of zero evidence that I can see so far. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Saudis have been... Uh, the Saudis have been... Um, this comes back to the regional <coughs> conflict yeah, between Sa- Saudi Arabia Saudis. and Iran. I mean, Saudi Arabia have... Uh, you know, they've, they've echoed or they've represented the fears of the West to some extent uh, in the Middle East for a long time, you know. And they have their own, per- it's more personal for Saudi Arabia because the threat from Iran to Saudi Arabia is that a new kind of, uh, a new structure, uh, a new economic and political structure might uh, develop in the Middle East that would see the end of the Saudi royals, a bunch of corrupt pseudo-Muslim head choppers, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and, you know, they have every right to be concerned because they that's what they are. Um, and they fear a change in the climate and the political climate and the, the social climate in the Middle East and they want to hold on. And that's why, uh, they, for the same reason that America has always feared Russian, uh, a Russian-led Eurasian expansion, uh, in, a, in a microcosm of that, uh, Saudi Arabia have feared an Iranian-led um, kind of Middle Eastern integration on a new footing that doesn't that gets rid of uh, of, of the royals. You know, the Saudi royals. Of course, Iran is uh, Shia and the Saudi supposedly are, are Sunni, so they've uh, they've stoked this inter-religious uh, sectarian um, conflict. You know, and Saudi Arabia is a big part to play in the, in the in the jihadis and ISIS and all that kind of stuff and uh, and you see a good example of what scares the Saudis is the the Houthis in um, in Yemen and that's why they're bombing them and that's why just today Saudi Arabia has, Iran called for a ceasefire today uh, in Yemen and Saudi Arabia rejected it you know because they've been saying well Iran's behind this and blah 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 they're backing the Houthis but the Houthis simply just want a change of uh you want a change from the the long-term corruption and kind of uh, tin pot sultans that were put in power in Yemen and in other in Saudi Arabia and in other Gulf states um, by the Anglo-American imperial empire builders uh, long ago. Uh, the, the Houthis are a, rep- a representation of people who want to see an end to that that kind of corrupt elite in the Middle East. And it would serve Iran very well as also, you know, to see um, a change of guard in Saudi Arabia, someone a bit more, a bit less head choppy, let's say, uh, or, yeah. or a bit, le- a bit le- more, more, more to the point, a bit less aligned with America, it's, it's, but a bit less Western looking and a bit more Eastern looking. It's bizarre when reality starts to fit as a result of all of their previous actions, say in this case Saudi Arabia, the reality starts to fit the very thing they didn't want to happen, which is essentially a Shia-led government to their south. Mm. And then they immediately have to project it onto the enemy that they, they've been so paranoid about coming mm. to power, even when that enemy, in quotes, never 
did anything to back or to instigate this rising. And such that when Iran says, well, let's just have a ceasefire at least, just to stop stop for a second. Saudi, Saudi Arabia can go, oh, well, you see, that, that's them playing their games. Mm-hmm. We know they're behind this. It's like the reality hits them square in the face, so they go full steam in the opposite direction. Where have we seen that before? Well, that's that's the United States foreign policy writ large. Mm-hmm. You see an outcome that does suit Russia's interests, but there's no evidence that Russia actually worked to bring it about. Mm-hmm. It naturally happened yeah. because of underlying processes of economics and international relations over history and over time. Yeah. Uh, well, and then when it happens, it happens. It's a, re- it's a balancing kind of act, you know, a, a rebalancing of of, uh, of nature, essentially. You know, I mean, there's, there's a natural way that uh, normal human beings want to kind of do business and interact with each other. And it's naturally, it's not based on I'm top dog and you'll all do what I say or else I'll bomb you back to the Stone Age, you know? That's unnatural. So you can only do that for so long before it seems there's some natural process that uh, we're, we're that uh, more cooperative spirit and nature in, in human beings starts to starts to spread again because uh, it's a natural order of things, really, you know? Um, so, yeah, and supposedly, you know, yeah, I mean... Hezbollah have been fighting with the Houthis in Yemen. I mean, they're Shia as well. Uh, but Saudi Arabia is still very much top dog. It's got a coalition of, I've just read, 10 countries. Egypt yeah. signed up right away. Yeah. I mean, what the hell? I thought for a second there, Egypt might have been well is, making deals with Putin. Yeah, the last thing it would do is jump to the Saudi Arabians' tune. Yeah, it's it's kind of a problem, you know. You can stop working across purposes there. Um, Al Sisi, General Al Sisi, you know, the former General Al Sisi is uh, is someone who you know you find a lot of. He's similar. I think of him in a same in a similar uh, mold as Erdogan in, in Turkey, you know. Mm. Are people who are kind of in it for themselves, you know. On the one hand, you've got ide- the ideologues, the, the black hats, you know, empire builders and stuff, and we rule the world, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants type thing, you know, uh, the Brits and the Americans and uh, who want to rule the world. And on the other hand, you've got uh, the other polarity would be, say, um, not completely in the other end of the spectrum, obviously, but Russians and Chinese who are don't have that kind of mentality, Um but then, in between all the all the countries in between that, which includes the Middle East and some of Eastern Europe and even African countries and stuff, you know, it comes down to individual leaders and what their what their inclinations are, you know, and they can vary a lot. You know, it's a real process of trying to convince. There's a battle for the for those countries between those two, between East and West, essentially the countries in between East and West. There's a battle for uh, hearts and minds of the political leaders, which is a bit of a messy game, obviously, because some of them probably don't have any hearts and, and it's really polarized minds. So it's, it's, it's not very clear, you know, and, and allegiances are very fickle things in, in that sense. They're, they can be very temporary things, you know. Uh, from one week to the next, you'll see conflicting uh, attitudes and moves coming out of places like Turkey or Egypt, you know, like you just said, you know, Egypt signing deals with Russia, but at the same time, 
But I think um, <clears throat> it's just about the ideology when it comes down to the ide- ideology, not of one particular person in those countries, but the ideology of the ruling kind of regime that's behind those leaders and stuff. And, and what, ho- who, uh, which ideology holds sway, you know, because <clears throat> a lot of them are obviously in it for the power and the, the rule and, and they, they're, they're authoritarians, you know, they're, they, they want to rule over the people and they have an elitist viewpoint, you know, so, um, but even those kind of people can be forced to kind of see which side their bread's buttered on type thing, you know, and even if they're not really genuinely uh, men or women or whatever of the people, they'll be forced, they'll go they'll, they'll go with that kind of ideology uh, for their own interests, you know what I mean? It's, like I said, it's, it's very, you know, these conflicting um, motives and... Uh, it seems that it seems to be at, at times that they're working at cross purposes, you know, which they are, you know. So it's all it's a big mess. It's a big mess, but the situation in Yemen is well. Mm. I just feel for. Them. I mean, it's a small country, but it's actually got a pretty sizable population. It's got the same population as Syria. I mean, I do not want to spend the next four years watching what happened in Syria. No, it happened in Yemen. Mind you, it's not that long ago that they had pretty much that situation in Yemen in the 90s. Um, the country is under siege from, by air and land. Saudi jets are just bombing at will. Uh, they kind of... All you hear about in the U.S. is, are we going to send carriers in to pick up the Americans we've abandoned there. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, they're not. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing, though. Well, they're not going to. But the Russians today did. The Russians did it not just for not just today. They did it. They started several weeks ago when the conflict actually began. The Russians started evacuating their own per, uh, nationals. But the Russians more recently have been continuing in that uh, uh, mission of getting people out of there. But recently they took uh, a bunch of different people, like people from all nationalities, got were allowed to get on Russian ships and get out of there, uh, including Americans. And I mean, what? The, <laughs> I was going to say I'm amazed that there's not uproar with this in, in the U.S., but um, I shouldn't be surprised. But it's a real uh, example of the nature of the people, of, of the leadership of the politicians uh, in the U.S. Where um, you know they just they just said no, we're not going to do it. We don't care. And the Russians had to come in. It's another example of you know that, the difference in attitude. The Russians came in, and Russians are effectively removing in part, American citizens from Yemen, while the American government goes, eh, whatever. Who are being bombed from jets that uh, Finney and Cunningham and, and others are reporting are being refueled mid-air by U.S. fuel tankers. Well, they're all made in America and given, given to the Saudis by, by the Britain. U.S. Uh, but but it's worse than that. It's it's been several weeks that the the U.S. has actually been involved, and in, they've they've fired Tomahawk cruise missiles from ships in the in the off the Gulf of Aden at Yemen, at targets in Yemen. The U.S. has been actively involved in bombing well, while present, pretending to be hands off, not well, involved in this conflict. Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. Limited. All this stuff. I mean, for God's sake, a whole year we heard about Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then here we have a clear, actual, straight-up invasion of one country against its neighbor because it doesn't like what it sees happening there. Mm. It's just bombing at will. Yeah. And nobody bats an eyelid. 
Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. You know, the US has uh, obviously it's got military bases all around the world, but there's one called Camp uh, Camp Lemonier, Camp Lemonier uh, in Djibouti, right across the kind of opening of the of the Red Sea there, right off the point of uh, it's on the kind of it's right across from Yemen. You know, it's only in Africa, short, yeah, yeah, uh, in Djibouti, and it's uh, I mean they've got you know. Hundreds or thousands of U.S. military personnel with ships and planes and boats all stationed there, and they're just—they're not doing anything to, to to respond to the requests from U.S. citizens in Yemen to come and take them out. They're just like, eh, he'll be all right, and leave it up to the Russians. It must be hard for some. I mean, you'd hope that some the Americans in Yemen would kind remember of remember that. Well, remember it already. See it in the moment today as kind of like. Yeah, our government for, forsook us, has forsaken us, and uh, the Russians came to our aid. Uh, how does that square with what we're hearing, what we've been hearing about uh, how evil Russia is? But then, cognitive dissonance, people don't do too well with that, you know. Just to go back to our, um, briefly to our discussion of how the Iranian nuke program is more or less a cover. Previously it was a lever and now it's coming to a close insofar as it's making sure Iran is cooperative and not disturbing the world order. Um, there's, here's a little, now and then you get a little gem from a Western diplomat or government official that helps put things in perspective. This is from the British Foreign Office Minister Kim Howells in 2007, direct quote, we want Iran to be much more engaged. Engaged, I mean, I guess that means part of the world order as we see it. It goes on, because Western Europe needs Iranian gas very badly. We need to break the Russian monopoly on supplies of gas to Western Europe. Mm. This is a pretty controversial statement to make, but the Russians need rivals. That's back in 2007. Mm-hmm. And this management of the resources of the Middle East mm-hmm. is what we see going on here. Yeah, well, it's a direct... I mean, what's happening as well, apart from the oil, uh, gas is obviously another major... Iran is a major gas uh, supplier to China and to uh to other countries and um, like you just said it's they're seeing the writing on the wall the march of Russia and China over the past 10 years or so has made these uh, western countries the Anglo-American Empire and the EU uh, start to desperately try to find ways to thwart that march to stop that march in its tracks and, uh, and part of that is let's be friends with Iran and uh, let's stop threatening them and see if we can uh, take them away from the the Russian orbit type thing, you know. But I'm sorry, Russia uh, and China as well are much better positioned because they've been doing this for a lot longer while the West was threatening Iran with a big stick and with annihilation from Israel. Uh, Russia and China were setting up, uh, establishing a relationship with Iran. So this is a bit late in the game for them to come and try and uh, sidle up to them and let's be buddies type thing, you know, and they're not very good at it anyway. 
and no one trusts them. So they have a major problem, and it's of their own making. Um, yeah, I mean, this is... A, you can see how, you know, Iran is pretty much on the border with Turkey there. And uh, and this new south stream from Russia through Turkey and into Greece, uh, and then into, into Western Europe from there, uh, for Russian gas is, um, is a problem. I mean, they tried to thwart it by stopping it going through Bulgaria, under the back scene through Bulgaria. So the Russians said, okay, well, let's, let's just go through Turkey. Turkey was cool. Greece is obviously the black sheep at the moment, and it's going to be happy to do it. So they're desperately trying. And I mean, it's ridiculous. They're going further afield. You know, Turkey's closer to Western Europe than... Uh, but we, we don't want Russian gas because, you know, Putin's going to, you know, come and enslave us all and throw us all in the gulag. It's... It's nonsense, you know, none of it makes any sense. It's like the guy has something to sell, just buy it. He's giving you a good price for it. No, for ideological reasons. On principle, I won't do that. But it's not about principle. It's about this, well, it is principle, but it's a kind of maniacal, not-so-principle, where, where, where they simply cannot, particularly the U.S. And the, and the British here, simply cannot conceive or allow for the idea that Russia and Eurasia as a whole would become the powerhouse of the world type thing, you know, particularly America has always wanted to stop that from happening and that's what's driving this, it's ridiculous, you know, it's like, it's literally cutting off your nose to spite your, not literally, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face, you know, um, but they're very good at that, you know, these crazies, the yeah. effing crazies as someone once called them, <coughs> I think it was Colin Powell called them effing crazies, yeah, that's who they are, they're effing crazies and, uh, I don't know where it's all, all going to end. Probably down the toilet. Probably. A lot. Speaking of Greece, uh, new Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras went to Moscow to get his marching orders. Mm. <laughs> he, he was told to invade all of Europe, uh, launch a full ground invasion of Europe. I read a... Uh, by uh, Putin. I read a Washington Post, CIA... Um, he was told that he should. He's got a shipment of book missile launchers. That's what he went to Moscow for. But yeah, he had it in the cargo hold. He took, he took it back. Baggage. He took it back to Greece. A bunch of book missile launchers, and they're going to use them to shoot down lots of uh, European uh, commercial airliners as a message. Yes, as a symbol uh, of Russian intentions. This this Washington Post article on. His two-day meetings. <clears throat> the headline was something like, it was a complete flop because he didn't get the money. Mm. I mean, they dressed it up as he's going to Moscow to get all the money he needs to go and pay off mm. yeah. <laughs> Western creditors. As if that was ever on the cards. 260 billion, yeah. Uh, no, uh, that wasn't why he went to Moscow. No. Um, probably went... I'd like to think that they went with a view to thinking ahead mm. post-dollar collapse mm. and that it went something along the lines of Putin saying to him, look, don't do anything rash just yet. Things are going a certain way. Just prepare yourself to make any moves post-crash. Maybe. It was largely symbolic. I mean, I'm sure they discussed the immediate... Well, I think um, well, one of the South Stream issues. Well, exactly. The, the, the relations with Turkey. The pipeline that they want to run through uh, the South Stream that they want to go through Greece, that's probably on the agenda. But I think, you know, that may be already a done deal type thing, you know. Um, assuming 
uh, Western European leaders don't decide that, no, even if it comes through Greece, we're not buying it. We're going to let our people freeze just so we can say, F you, Russia. We don't like you. You're naughty. So, uh, but assuming, I'm assuming that this is a situation where, like I say, kind of eventually more rational, sane heads prevail. Because it's like, listen, we need the gas. Just effing buy it. You know, eventually that is the final conclusion. They try to avoid it. No, 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 let's not do that. Let's find some other, some other way, some other, some other solution. And eventually, obviously, other solutions don't work because it's pretty simple. You need gas, buy it. Uh, so eventually, they begrudgingly, someone will begrudgingly say, listen, we're just going to go ahead and buy it, okay? Is that all right? After like six months or six years of negotiations, yeah, let's just buy some. Don't, don't tell anybody, though. <laughs> Keep <laughs> it on the queue, don't say, don't say we're buying Russian gas. Um, all of this is, yeah, it's obviously going to come to, to nothing, but there's a lot of toing and froing and so-called diplomacy going on that between East and West and, you know, fighting over these different countries, trying to court, you know, the Turks and the Iranians and keeping the Iraqis on side and trying to get rid of Assad and, and appeasing the Saudis and helping the Saudis, you know, uh, calming them down, you know, because those Saudi royals, like, they just, they're hysterical, you know, they have, I've, I've, I've been a fly on the wall. Uh, you know, they just, they're, they're Madonna, like screaming Madonnas type thing, you know, when they don't get their way, they just like, the skirts go up and they start <laughs> flailing around the world. The swords come out. The swords come out and they start slashing at the walls and manservants and things like that. And when they don't get their way, they just chop off some heads to keep, to make themselves feel better, you know. Uh, well, it's very hysterical, you know. And, uh. Yeah, I, I imagine that place something oh, like. <laughs> oh, for this head, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> something like in that movie Hunger Games, the yes. second one where the the new games masters uh, trying to mm. keep the evil president snow, you know, mm. calm. Mm. I'm dealing with the situation. Here's what I propose. So we have a little celebrity wedding for the two protagonists in the story, and then boom, we show a whole bunch of executions, and yeah. then boom, what dress is she going to be wearing on the wedding day? <clears throat> boom. Mm. Floggings. Yeah. Some more executions. And it, <laughs> I don't know what it's like in Saudi Arabia right now, but yeah. if they're at war abroad, yeah. chances are good that they're increasing the repression back home as well. Yeah, well, when they have, you know, like you said, they have floggings and beheadings to, to try and, that's, that's, their, that's their main way of keeping control, you know, apart from uh, repression, major repression across the country, you know. Uh, women aren't allowed to drive and stuff like that. Uh, it's amazing. I don't know. I mean, even people in you know, Fox News talks about it. So it's, you know, it's at that level of obviousness uh, where the question of why why is Saudi Arabia our friend? Well, they they cut people's heads off for stealing, and they won't let women drive. But why are they our friends again? Uh, nobody really knows. It's a mystery. Let's just go with it. <clears throat> So yeah, the whole thing—it's just a farce. Like really, it's but the, beyond a farce. Really. The entire American way of life, in quotes, depends on it. Yeah, absolutely depends on it. Yep. Depends on this this relationship for Saudi yeah. and the same goes for the city of London and yeah. as casino capitalism for recycling of petrodollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the three of them are really integrated in this way that. Yeah. There cannot be a change or no. they're all screwed. They're all going down and that's the problem. You know, they're, 
they've backed themselves into a corner effectively and put themselves in a position that is no longer tenable and is becoming increasingly untenable as a new kind of order and a balance reasserts itself. And they will, like rats, trapped in a corner, if it's even true that rats do that. I don't know if they do, but it's a good analogy because they are rats. And uh, they're about on the, on the evolutionary ladder, they're at the level of rats. <clears throat> in fact, rats are above them. I believe and, so. And when they're trapped in a corner, they, they, atta- they attack, you know, they go, like the Saudis are doing, they, all they know is, is violence, you know, because they simply cannot um, accept the idea of them not being rulers of the world and in either of the world itself or in their own little region. <clears throat> so, sad, but there it is, you know. It could be an interesting summer in the U.S. Um, recent article, I think it was in the U.S. press as well, because it came to my attention from one of our American forum members, but it's an article on RT, uh, undercover special forces to sweep U.S. Southwest. It's a massive exercise taking place this summer. Operation Jade Helm mm-hmm. kicking off in July for eight weeks, involving 1,200 Green Berets, Navy SEALs, and special operations personnel. They'll be simulating battlefield conditions soldiers may face in foreign countries, <laughs> for which it's an eight-week-long exercise. They've designated Towns, I think small towns off the map, more or less, in Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, four other states. But the purpose of the exercise, exercise in quotes, they're going to be considered hostile territory. Mm-hmm. Some of these special ops personnel will be operating incognito among civilians. Okay. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's freaky because how easy would that would it be to just, you know, mid-operation say, well, it was an exercise kind of live now. Mm. Sorry about that. But circumstances were forced on us. Yeah, somebody shot at us. Somebody shot at us or a riot broke out. Mm. It's um, it's just, I mean, the, the few videos I've seen of, and they've been going on for a few years, but the few videos I've seen of, uh, of those kind of operations, those... Um, those, what are they called? I'm not called operations. Uh, something military training. Um, yeah. Where they reconstruct. They've actually built entire sets. I mean, they don't necessarily go into a town. Right. They'll build a fake town in the right. desert in Arizona or somewhere. Mm-hmm. But bring in props, um, actors. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Works. So it's kind of those kind of maneuvers, the videos I've seen of them are, are pretty pretty freaky, you know, because a lot of them happen at nighttime, you know, and uh, these black helicopters flying over a downtown city center and guys rappelling out of the, <laughs> all in black rappelling out of, I mean, it's just, there's something very freaky about it, you know, very strange. I mean, it really gives you a flavor of, uh, of a kind of police state, you know what I mean, where um, you have the military and, and kind of helicopters flying over your city and dropping down into populated areas and running around the streets and stuff. I mean, that doesn't happen really anywhere else except maybe, you know, in kind of war-torn countries or um, countries 
and civil wars or something, you know. It, it's kind of like as close as you can get to actual, actually uh, simulating a war-type environment. Um, yeah. And posing that on the people without any good good reason. What, for training purposes, really? In downtown, uh, downtown big city, you know, I mean, there's uh, something very disturbing about it, to me anyway. It it goes back a while, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. Alex Jones has been going on about it for over a decade, into the 90s. Mm. He was talking about black black helicopters and people mm. rappelling down. Um, you know, he was brushed off mm. for the longest time. But clearly, it's, it is going on. And it's got to the point now where it's it's openly reported. It's no longer like something that's just brushed off as, no, you, you didn't see what you just saw. Mm. Um, why do all of this if you're not braced for something mm. that were required, you know? Mm. Of course, it can, the justification for it is that they need this kind of training in an urban setting. Yeah. It's well, like, it's as, like, as they reported here, they need this training because they're going to need it in foreign countries. Right, yeah. So, I mean, there's loads of foreign countries that are, I think, uh, I think um, one of them was in Tampa, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Um, so, the idea is that, uh, yeah, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of places where the U.S. military would go around the world where it would, where it would be on active military operations, you know, possibly live fire, live fire situations, you know. There's lots of places around where they would be doing that elsewhere in the world that are just exactly the same as Tampa. Are there? Uh, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, well, I mean, where, where have they been? I mean, Afghanistan. Well, I mean, look at Afghanistan. You just go, go on Google, Google Maps, you know, Google Earth, and look at, maybe look at Kandahar, you know, or pick any other decent-sized town or city in Afghanistan, and then have a walk around the streets, and you'll see it's exactly the same as Tampa, Florida. The buildings, you know, there's lots of Starbucks, uh, McDonald's is everywhere, uh, Burger King, you know, uh, the you know the parks, all that kind of stuff, just exactly the same. So uh, I, I'm buying it. Well, one place they're going is Syria. Um, debate in Canada, debate all over the media right. is to what extent are our boys, mm. Canadian special forces, in Syria? Well, they've been there six months, but the government's trying to say, oh, they're not involved in actually anything on the front lines. Alas, a month ago, a month ago or so, uh, one of these special forces guys was killed. Hmm. Um, yeah, so they mar- okay, we're on the ground, but they're not actually involved in any combat. Yeah. yeah but that's the kind of places that have to go, you know, and the Americans too are, are doing the same thing. If the Canadians are doing it, the Canadians always play second fiddle the Americans. Uh, from a military perspective. How's it going, eh? How's it going, eh? So, the... (laughs) The... the, Yeah, have a look at Homs, for example. Have a look at Homs. It's probably not on Google Maps, but have a look at some pictures of of Homs right now where American troops might be, and you'll just see freaking Tampa all over it. (laughs) 
exactly the same. Palm trees everywhere. That's about it. That's where the similarity ends. I'm not sure it's on the map anymore. It's no, you have some pictures. Obliterated. Uh, the reason I mentioned Canadian Special Forces is because they are being sent to Ukraine. Yeah. They're now acknowledging that they're going to be sent to Ukraine. For all we know, they went six months ago. Yeah. There's a similar city setting. Uh, so far as it's, you know, modern cities. Mm. That's one application of being trained in real situations you mean back they're, home. They're being sent to eastern Ukraine? No, they're being, well, they're being sent. That They didn't say. I mean, they just said Ukraine. Yeah, where are they going to go? Well, that's, that's a, they could be anywhere because Ukraine is, is threatening to break apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, probably if they go to Ukraine, they're just going as military advisors. And, and there have been some Americans involved, but a, a small number probably. Uh, private military contractors, also known as um, serial killers. Uh, in a badge. Serial killers, well, they don't even have badges. Serial killers in a baseball cap. Uh, those private mili- military contractors have been uh, involved, reportedly, in fighting in, in eastern Ukraine, in Donbass, and Lansk. So, um, it's not just in military. They're also tapping up... Um, uh, city police forces in the U.S. I kid you not. Cops from Reno, Nevada mm. have been going out to Ukraine. Mm. As part of a program that's like five or six years old. Yeah, to train local police. Train, advise. Yeah. And... Yeah, so Ukraine, uh, I was saying that it's breaking apart. The Odessa, some council of, like, I think, local MPs there apparently issued some kind of declaration of independence for the Odessa oblast of province to break away. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, another region further north, Transcarpathia, Carpathia, mm-hmm. which is kind of ethnic mix, but it's Russians, kind of old Eastern Eastern Orthodox, mm. Eastern Slavic, but in Western Ukraine. So they're surrounded by people who would be probably the, the main base or support base mm. of the Kiev junta. But still there's a region within there which is saying oh, we're not happy with this at all. So I don't know how far advanced it is, but Ukraine could break up uh, there could be other regions that will flare up. Mm. This well, year. I think that's their, that's been their main fear. The puppet powers in Kiev. Their main fear has been that uh, the that other parts of Ukraine might go a similar way if if Eastern Ukraine, Donetsk, and Luhansk and stuff them um, they broke away. It might it would give. That's always the power that bees fear. They don't like. Unless it's on their terms, they don't like breakaway parts of countries because it can spread, you know. It's like, a, hey, that's a good idea. So, um, but on the uh, little update on the, I haven't really checked recently, uh, just the past day or two, but a couple of days ago on the German wings crash, <laughs> it was kind of an oh my God 
moment for me anyway, because in the second article that I wrote on the German Wings crash, I quoted them saying that they had checked Andreas Lubitz, the co-pilot's iPad, and seen that he had done a search online for how to commit suicide. In the nervous. No, just how to commit suicide. Oh, the general brochure, yeah. That's what they said, that they had found that. Who found it, we don't know. Whether or not they did the search themselves and then said, oh, look, he did it, we don't know. But anyway, that's how easy it would be to do that, obviously. But <clears throat> um, Or just make it up altogether. But anyway, they said that he had searched for how to commit suicide. And I, at the time in that article I wrote, I'm kind of waiting for them to then say that he had also searched for how to crash a plane into a mountain and also how to make someone go to the toilet. Uh, and I said that obviously facetiously, you know, it was it was because it was so ridiculous to me that they, after this long process of building this ridiculous narrative that he was a suicide pilot, they said, oh yes, he searched online. I was half expecting them to come out with something like that. So I was making fun of what they might next come up with, you know, finding searches for how do you make someone go to the toilet. And then two days ago, Fox News, and it was spread around a few other <clears throat> websites, actually, it wasn't just Fox News. Uh, the mainstream media basically were saying that he had searched online for uh, information about diuretics, <clears throat> which is <clears throat> things that make you, make you need to go to the toilet. And they speculated that he may have put such a thing in the captain's drink to make him go to the toilet. Oh my! So I was like, "Really?" I was joking. You weren't meant. <laughs> you weren't meant to take that. I didn't mean anybody to take that seriously. No, 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 no. You can't do. You can't do that. I was joking. I was being completely, you know, uh, you know, ridiculous and, and and just positing this, you know, outrageous scenario, you know, just to make a point. You're not meant to go there because that's the only thing that keeps me sane. But if you start to do that, if the mainstream media starts to do that, I, I will go on scene. Because so, <laughs> really, I, I, I thought I had plumbed the depths of the the ridiculousness of these people's lies, and but apparently I haven't. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of shocking to me to see that they would actually go there. And also, they actually put this out, and it ties in very well with the way that they've been building this narrative, which has largely been on the basis of nothing. The narrative that they have built, the long, drawn-out, day-by-day story, building of the story that he was a suicide pilot and all the associated, quote-unquote, evidence that wasn't evidence to back it up. This is just the icing on the cake because not only did they say that he had searched online for diuretics and that he may have put it in the captain's drink, they said that, but it seems that this is just based on speculation. I'm like, what? You mean you're speculating that he may have looked online for diuretics and then may have put it in the drink? So, so what you're saying is you just you just throw on that out there as part of the narrative that you just threw out over the past two weeks. So that now, for some reason, everybody in the world knows to be the hard tr- truth and facts about this case, and it's down more or less in history and in, in you know in, in in the kind of public history. As this is how it happened, he was a suicide pilot. He did search online for how to commit suicide. He, you know, told his girlfriend that he was going to, you know, prove something, uh, do something that everyone would remember him by. And um, so, so you're saying that this is all just, uh, you know, it's kind of, well, all of it is just speculation. But 
my my question is how did you know how did this happen where everybody in the world if you ask anybody did you hear about the German wings uh, crash yes do you know what happened yeah that crazy pilot he crashed it into the mountain because he was suicidal and um, wanted to make his mark I'm like how did that happen where everybody knows that when the investigation has not actually really it certainly it hasn't finished and hasn't produced any results yet hasn't actually there's been people do people realize that there's the actual investigation into that crash has not actually concluded anything how do you, how do you reconcile that with the fact that the entire world knows that it was a crazy co-pilot who wanted to commit suicide and kill everybody else with him so was well, he wasn't he's a he's a he's a mass murderer by definition Right, because he certainly he could have chosen to kill himself if it was just himself he was interested in, but he wanted to kill, you know, a hundred and uh, fifty other people. So um, the crash is only three weeks old, and yeah. it can take years. Yeah, well, it can take. It certainly in take, other it cases, it's taken them years. Yeah, just the fact that this is the plane, the plane, <laughs> the plane, the plane. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's just sickening to me. You know, it's you, you just need such... to watch what you say. Why now? Or your name's going to end up as a source on investigative reports into everything you write about. I know, yeah, because I said it. Yeah, because you said it. And uh, yes, then the pilot spiked the co-pilot spiked the pilot's drink with a diuretic source. Net Joe Quinn. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. <laughs> I was there, you know. Now the whole thing is just. It just sickens me, to be honest. It sickens me the way that they've gone about it. And it sickens, apparently it sickens a lot of other pilots, airline pilots, because as I mentioned previously, I think last week, there's 38,000 pilots in, a, in an association called the Cockpit Association in Europe, 38,000 European pilots, and they released a statement saying that they were kind of more or less horrified at the this so-called investigation uh, where they had concluded that the pilot, the co-pilot did it within 24 hours. I mean, it's absolutely inappropriate and absolutely you know, contravenes all the rules, effectively, of, of an investigation, you know. Uh, it's not that the media isn't going to speculate and stuff, but the way the media was coming out with these authoritative statements and the investigators were not saying anything to, to rein them in mm. shows that this was deliberately set up as a trial by media. In fact, the fact that it was deliberately set up from the beginning as a trial by media and intended to be a trial by media. That was the way this was going to go, uh, is evidenced by the fact that some unnamed French military official called the New York Times on the evening of the crash and told the New York Times that it was the co-pilot. Based on cockpit voice recorder, supposedly, yet the the morning after he did that, the very next day, the official investigative authority in France, the BEA, the chief of it said that he had listened to the cockpit voice recorder and he said that there was nothing on it that would give any explanation as to what happened. So before he could say that, some unknown French military official was talking to the New York Times, spreading a rumor. And that rumor spread and has continued to spread, I mean, built on by the media only. So people are believing... 
Uh, I mean, the media these days is no—it's all the weekly world news. You know, it's all the the trash tabloid kind of uh, you know bad boy found on the moon type thing, and that is what people in around the world are believing. That is their that is their source for what happened to German Wings. Apparently, that's as good as it gets in this case for an investigation. Not yeah. very scientific. It's it's an echo chamber. Echo. Echo. Exactly. Somebody says it. The advantage of having media cross-owned and um, all getting their stories from the same pool or from the next biggest media corporation of the food chain is the authoritarians unconsciously or just as part of their nature pick up whatever the next one up is saying and repeat it in contravention to how you think they behave. If they're looking to authorities to tell them how things are, you think they'd wait for the investigative authority, the BEA in France, in this case, for example, to give them a clear direction as to which way they should think something mm-hmm. for the explanation of this crash. Mm-hmm. But no, there's, there's something else that intervenes and it has far greater power, largely because it was just repeated over and over again. It doesn't matter how many who said it. You could put the words in Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. and as long as it's repeated, begun by someone big, New York Times, AP, and then repeated enough times. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the truth. It completely flying in the face of, of basic logic. Mm-hmm. I'd say that about. I'd say that about maybe ten percent of commercial airline commercial airliner crashes in the past thirty years. Ten percent of those, and in ten percent of those cases, the truth has been told. Most other cases have been. Something unusual they don't want you to know about. Exactly. Something unusual and a significant percentage of them have been caused by people, someone deliberately uh, causing the crash. Some human agency deliberately causing the crash. I mean, there's Lockerbie, such a clear-cut, obvious situation where someone someone put a bomb on the plane and it wasn't terrorists, unless you define, unless you broaden your defini- definition of terrorists. Um, and... There was also Swiss Air Flight uh, 111, Swiss Air Flight 111 in 1998 that was going from um, Geneva to to New York. Oh, sorry, it was going from New York to Geneva and um, full of UN diplomats, uh, Saudi prince, uh, lots of other important people. Um, and it was carrying about half a billion dollars in diamonds and cash and gold. And it crashed into um, Canadian um, waters. So the Canadians uh, conducted the investigation. And one of the, the RCMP guys, the lead investigator, because it was... There's a whole problem with these crashes. Was it an accident or was it uh, sabotage? Was it a criminal act? If it's an accident, then the civilian authority does the investigation. If it's very quickly determined to be a criminal act, well then it's a police matter because it's homicide. It's mass murder. So they always play that 
one, you know, depending on what's uh, most expedient or most uh, in their interest at the time, they'll either say it was an accident or say it was uh, a terror attack or a criminal uh, criminal attack. Um, in this case, it was very obviously uh, the official story was that the, there's cockpit voice recordings of um, the pilot saying that they had smoke a fire in the cabin and that they suspected some kind of explosion above them or behind them in the in the cockpit and there was a fire and and smoke in the cabin and then it crashed into the sea killing everybody 228 I think um, but this lead investigator with the RCMP because both of them were on this case at the time the civilian authority the NTB I think it's called and the <clears throat> RCMP were involved and this one guy um, who was leading the investigation, a police officer, he did a really good job. He was very, very thorough about it, but he was repeatedly stonewalled because he found, with the help of a, uh, some samples of, of wiring that he gave to a scientist, um, the guy, the scientist, found 10 times the amount of magnesium that would be expected in a normal electrical fire, which, and obviously, when you see that amount of magnesium, it's... It points directly to an incendiary device placed in a specific area behind the cockpit to burn up you know, very hot and very quickly and to you know, effectively destroy a specific set of wiring that would make the plane uh, basically a, a rock turning, you know, it's it's not flyable. Right. And that seems to be what happened. And uh, but this guy was basically, he was told that he collected like thousands. He did such an amazing investigation. He collected thousands of uh, photographs and hours of video and thousands of memos. And he had his own like hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of his field notes. And he tried to present them and they said, no, it's an accident. Go away. And I even tried to get him to produce a second set of notes that said it was an accident. Even though all of his notes suggested that it was, it was, criminal, uh, it was a criminal case that someone had deliberately set fire to the plane. And uh, and that was the end of it, and that's officially gone down. That was 1998. Officially, Swiss Air 111 has gone down as an accident, just you know, faulty wiring. But there was clear evidence. So, the only real evidence you needed was the fact that there was a massive amount of magnesium uh, on the wiring. You know, and any uh, idea why someone wanted that particular plane to come down? There's so many people on that plane. You know, there's like I said, there was Saudi Prince. There was loads of different uh, UN because it was it was a flight to use regularly every day it was twice a day between geneva and between new york and it was full of un you know un headquarters in new york and people going over to other un missions in switzerland geneva okay. um, but yeah i mean apparently of the it was half a billion 500 million dollars worth of mainly diamonds but also gold and money and in all the records they supposedly never they never found a single a single jewel Jesus, do you think that could have just been a heist? Uh, maybe. Well, that could be like a nice payoff for it. Well, absolutely, yeah. We need him or her out, and by the way... Well, we consider the type of people we're talking about, and we mentioned these last week, you know, you're talking about uh, people who shoot down, uh, you know, are willing to cause a German wings flight to crash into a mountain for their own reasons and, you know, shoot up an elementary school and stuff, uh, these kind of people would do that for fun. So if there's $500 million involved in it, yeah, they'd do it for $5. 
Uh, people on board are not really a consideration, to be honest. You know, if there's a little motivation there, then freaky. So there've been many accidents. Yeah, there've been that we're not. It's they're easy targets because you're in the air. I mean, it's how horrible. Many, how many ways out of train down a plane? <clears throat> exactly. Well, the thing is, the, the thing about it is, the planes are very safe. Even you know, statistically speaking, they're very safe. There's thousands, tens. Of All planes. things being equal, if they're allowed to do what they can do. Well, there's, yeah, there's tens of thousands of planes flying through the air around the world every day, uh, all, all all day every day, and uh, so the amount that have fallen out of the sky in the past year or whatever, six or so is um, five or six is not, doesn't even alter the stats. Alter much. that stats no. really that much, although it's you know it's psychologically for people, yeah. it has an effect. But um, the thing is. The ways that a plane can crash and kill everybody on board an airliner, a catastrophic kind of crash where everybody dies, um, there's several ways, but there's only really one explanation amongst those causes of airliner crashes. There's only one explanation that the powers that be are willing to go with. So, um, are willing to allow it to be known. So, right there, your chances are at least if we say that there's maybe you know one is sabotage, deliberate sabotage. Two is uh, is some kind of uh, atmospheric anomaly, and the third is seems to be well, well terrorism, uh, which hasn't really happened a lot. And eleven, obviously, a notable one, but. The airline hijackings and stuff were a thing of the 80s and stuff. We haven't seen them very much in, in recent years. So, um, <clears throat> somebody deliberately, the powers that be themselves deliberately, or some faction of them bringing it down, is one atmospheric anomaly, is, is two. And these days it's a suicide pilot. Uh, and there's been very few actual suicide pilots, obviously. Uh, or, or, well, let's not or say any. Or, or human, well, or any even. Uh, human error. The only thing they're willing to go with is human error. And the chances of human error on those, on those planes is very small as well. So the vast majority of airline crashes are caused that, that we know about have been caused by deliberate sabotage, mostly by the powers that be themselves and atmospheric uh, anomalies. And those two can never be spoken about, which means that the true reason for most of the crashes can never be spoken about. So what you get mostly from most crashes in recent decades is a, a line of bullshit. Either about, you know, suicide pilots or uh, he, a pilot that made a very bad decision. And those are, the suicide pilot one, like you said, is probably uh, non-existent and the human error one is very, very rare. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I did start actually looking after German winds crash. You start to look at related events, see if there's any pattern. And the only pattern I could see was I couldn't get a straight answer for what happened to all these plane crashes. Yeah. And I realized I was looking at many possible causes. Mm. I gave up there because, Jesus, you know, you need to actually look in detail at each one. But that's a logical way of well, reducing it down to. Yeah. Yeah, the basic fundamentals of it. The thing we have to but add in most is, of the time, what we're told happened didn't happen. Yeah, most of the time, yeah. 
I mean, people have to understand that. That's the same. That applies for... Applies to everything else. Applies to everything else, yeah. Um, most people, and there's a lot of stuff in other areas that people would accept. Uh, they'd accept that to be true in, in, in other areas, you know, like politicians and what they say and stuff. They know that, that they don't tell you what happened. I mean, people have enough. There's enough evidence out there publicly to allow people to <clears throat> accept that as, as factual. Like, you know, an example is the Iraq war, you know. And everybody knows that Tony Blair, people in, in the UK, for example, know that Tony Blair uh, lied, lied about the threat from Iraq to justify a, an invasion, an occupation. So um, it's in the public consciousness that what we're told is very often is not the truth. But the problem is that it's the degrees of, of, the, um, of the seriousness of the crime. Uh, that people have a, a problem going to, you know, in terms of going further along the spectrum of of the, the egregiousness of the, of the crime, you know. They're very, British people are very, in particular are very annoyed because they don't like Tony Blair in general and across the board, but they're very annoyed about the Iraq war, and they, but they know about the Iraq war, so um, they're, they're willing to go there and say, well, yeah, you know, he he was a liar and Blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't affect them directly, really, you know. Some of them maybe for families and military personnel and stuff, but generally speaking, the population, that doesn't affect them directly. But the idea that they would, they might be, uh, you know, someone might, someone among Tony Blair's circle or above him or whatever might be involved in deliberately killing a few hundred people on a commercial airliner just for some spurious reason is, uh, is, hard for them to accept that level of deceit, you know. And so all they're left with is suicide pilot who searched the internet for diuretics. The lone wolf. It often comes back to that. Yeah. Alright, we got a caller on the line here. It's Bahar. Hi, Bahar. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome. Um, hi. Uh, I would like to ask about the situation in Syria. Do you think that Assad will succeed in getting rid of ISIS and be able to strengthen his country again? Or do you think um, that won't happen? Um, well, they've been very... The people behind this this bunch of ISIS... Now, this ISIS organization who have been funding them and training them and giving them weapons uh, are very persistent, you know. Um, they don't seem yeah. to be backing. They don't seem to be backing down very much, you know. Um, they've hit on a on a an interesting kind of uh, variation on the on the proxy group or sending in a, a proxy army to fight your war for you to attack your enemy, you know, and that they've. Mm-hmm. Um, They've kind of spread it out to this ideological, you know, extremist Islam kind of interpretation of Islam and uh, and spread it across borders, spread it from Syria into Iraq so they can come and go from Iraq to Syria freely and they have kind of uh, controlled to some extent over the Iraqi government because they destroyed Iraq, you know, over the past 10 or 12 yeah. years. And uh, so there's a freedom of movement for them there and they've created... They've, they haven't just used them like they usually use them, which is like just send them in and get them to try and do a job over a short, relatively short period of time and then 
uh, disband them. You know, they seem to have cut them loose and set them free and let them kind of grow organically as best they can. You know, although they're they're still continuing to fund them and send them British schoolgirls and and things like that. So, um, yeah. But uh, I Do don't you know. Think I mean, it's like um, like Libya. Um, well, that's the thing. It's it's drawing out right now in a pretty horrible kind of, you know, tiring and uh, frustrating kind of way. You know, trying to wear us down by almost by through attrition. You know, just by keeping it going and pumping out these ISIS videos of trying to scare the yeah. population. But it seems that there's no option like there was in Syria for a NATO involvement, and that's why it's taking longer because NATO okay. can't go in and just bomb Assad's, Assad's palace because, largely because of uh, Russian influence. He doesn't live in a palace. Yeah, he doesn't live in a palace. <laughs> bomb yeah. his, wherever wherever he is, uh, bomb him and that's it and declare victory. You know, um, Libya was 11 months, but it it was relatively short. Uh, Syria's been going on for almost four years, you know, or okay. yeah, about that. So, um, but it's hard to tell. I mean, certainly Assad, you know, the Russian, or the Syrian uh, government on Assad and the Syrian military are being supported uh, by Russia and by uh, I think Hezbollah plays a, a kind of a, an important role there as well. So it's a kind of a and if Hezbollah does, Iran does. You see, they can't just be done with Assad because Assad has got a. Iran behind him, and ultimately, in part, Russia as well. That's why it's dragging out differently. Um, he, the Syrian army, the actual Syrian state's army, had successfully won, if you like, against the initial wave of proxy forces, the um, right. so-called Free Syrian Army that became then yeah. a blurred line of al-Nusra front slash maybe al-Qaeda types. You can see to the about two years ago, they were starting to bring in some of the people who had been in Libya and in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Iraq in quotes, adding them into the mix. That was like the second wave, and it's dragging out in the most horrible way possible. Like Joe said, they won't just take Assad out because I can probably bet that among the discussions, when it comes to, for example, Iran's nuclear program, that's not discussed in isolation. All of the other topics are connected to it. So the U.S. knows it can't just mm. have its ISIS people mm-hmm. simply go into Damascus and take them out. No, I think yeah. there's I think, a management of the conflict that they try and yeah. I think hold up. What you might see in the near future is that ISIS will just uh, kind of fizzle out or up and kind of disappear uh, as quickly as they came on the scene. You know, it's possible that that might happen because if, if a decision is made uh, in, in these talks with Iran over over Iran's, supposedly over Iran's nuclear uh, program, but in reality about the whole kind of uh, strategic uh, relationship, Management of strategic the relationships in the Middle East. Uh, if, if that is, if, if there's something, if there's a decision as part of those negotiations, a decision to kind of uh, 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 leave Syria alone, and allow Assad yeah. to, you know, change the script. Well, then ISIS, yeah, ISIS can be made to disappear, uh, literally, you know, overnight almost. Okay, hopefully that will happen. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, thanks, thanks for your question. 
All right. Thanks, Bahar. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, recently, the full square, full scale ground war against ISIS in Iraq took a weird turn where uh, there were thousands, they said, thousands of ISIS fighters holed up in Tikrit to the north. And a combination of actual Iraqi army soldiers and militias from the south of Iraq that are semi-endorsed by the central authority in Iraq, semi-Iranian funded and quasi semi endorsed by the US and the UK had a united front and they surrounded these guys in Tikrit and they had them and they were like well, tomorrow we're, we're going to wrap this up and that day US jets started coming and bombing oh we accidentally bombed mm. some of uh, the positions taken up by the anti-ISIS fighters mm. sorry about that but the Iraqis were like no no effing way. This this cannot be a coincidence. We know how precise you mm. can be with these things. And they said, forget it. We're walking away. We're walking out of here. We're on strike. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this got out and was reported in the West. Apparently, it lasted a day. And then the airstrike stopped. And they did move in and retake Tikrit. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to all those ISIS fighters. But there's this kind of thing going on where they don't trust the American planes. Are they coming to bomb ISIS targets or are they coming to bomb us, the people actually taking out ISIS? Mm-hmm. And from day to day, I think they just manage it. Oops, this airdrop of weapons, medical supplies, food happened to get in ISIS hands. Sorry about that. Um, oh, it looks like ISIS is winning a bit too fast here on this front. Okay, let's remove supplies for them. I think I think it is kind of some kind of absurdly managed theater like that. Um, this is why Canadian Special Forces are being shot in Syria. Supposedly, this is the beauty of something like friendly fire. They can just say, oh, that shouldn't have happened because the folks back home have no clue one way or the other. Mm. But now and then, I suspect some of the, at least some of the Special Forces for Canadian or US or British the reason they get killed is because uh, on this day they're playing the role of ISIS mm-hmm. in some in some respect they're mm-hmm. either calling in an airstrike mm-hmm. against the good guys in quotes mm-hmm. or they themselves shooting Kurdish Peshmerga or mm-hmm. Iraqi militias trying to fight ISIS um, it's this kind of Dirty, dirty war. It's an unbelievably it's, dirty. You can kind see of what the, you can see what the end conclusion will be. It's just well, it's complete chaos, really. Yeah. It's the end conclusion, you know. Um, they think they can manage it, but ultimately, um, when you set that kind of that kind of chaos loose, you know, I mean, it's very difficult to to control it, and uh, especially when uh, there are forces like we've been talking about with uh, in, involved working against you, you know. It can all uh, get beyond your control very quickly, you know. And who, I mean, but those people don't care if they lose control of it, you know. I mean, ultimately, they don't care. They try to maintain control, but ultimately, they can all just walk away, you know. They say, well, we tried, you know. Of course, they'll keep trying until they, you know, put as many people 
in the ground as possible, you know. But the thing is, if they did just walk away, things would naturally return to a normal equilibrium. That is the irony. It's not that they fear they lost control of the situation, it would break out in chaos. No. The chaos would have to be constantly fueled. Even if temporarily you had ISIS in some new Islamic state, mm. it, would, how long would it last it without last, yeah. the popular support? Backing, yeah. yeah, or, or popular support. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, I think it's time for a change of script here. Um, Joe, I just want to get your opinion before we move on. Okay. Um, are you excited that Hillary's running? Well, Obama said that she would make a great president, so whatever Obama says is good for me. Like you know, he's he's the commander in chief, so uh, he knows he knows what's up. And I mean, sure, she's a Democrat like him, but you know, he's not biased or anything. I mean, there's no there's no there's no bias in American politics. It's all just about the hard up truth. And how does uh, it? Make you feel to to know that you could have eight years of Hillary. Eight years of Hillary. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'd rather not say how it makes me feel, because uh, I might. Uh, <laughs> you might get sick. All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hillary, whatever. I hope. I don't know. I think the universe is going to intercede uh, on that one. You know, that's just a bridge too far. Hillary is president. You know. Um, <laughs> It won't actually even happen. No, the universe is coming down to, down to have a say on that on that particular topic, I reckon. Anyway, as I was about to say, I think it's time to change script and go with our latest word from our pop culture expert on the shores of Lake Canada. Here's Relic. Take it away, Relic. Everyone, it's your old friend Relic here with a, another hot off the presses edition of Pop Culture Roundup, where we examine all the latest shenanigans of Hollywood super elite as they go about their award winning extra special lives. And as usual, I'm reporting to you today from my isolated backwoods log cabin on the sub-zero shores of Upper Lake Canada. And, as in the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks' only friend was a volleyball named Wilson, my only companion here is a 17-foot-high snowman I built back in 1962. His name is Boris, and he still has yet to melt. Our first story for this week, coming from Sputnik News, it concerns our very own underpopulated, overly apologetic, and oh-so-polite country of Canada. We have a a larger city somewhere on the southern coast, uh, where all the people with suits and ties and shiny cars live, called Toronto. Now, this city's famous Toronto Symphonic Orchestra has recently cancelled a performance by a Ukrainian-American concert pianist, Valentina Lisitsa, because 
they didn't like some of the things she was writing on her Twitter account. Born in Kiev, Valentina has been quite vocal in her opposition to the Western-backed neo-Nazi-led regime currently in power in Ukraine, and apparently the cabal of corporate-sponsored shills currently in charge of the TSO have accused her of being provocative and deeply offensive and of inciting hatred on the interweb. Well, it seems now that free speech in Canada only applies when one supports the pre-established government propaganda, like Je suis Charlie or Putin's an evil dictator drive through and get a double-double at Tim Hortons and roll up the rim to win. Apparently, any form of expression that does not align with the status quo of the powers that be is instantly marginalized and squashed. And for all those, well, slightly undereducated Canucks out there, imagine it's like being sent to the penalty box for a lifetime suspension. Anyways, keeping in line with the politically correct times, the Toronto Symphonic Orchestra have just announced that they will replace Valentina's concert with one by Barry Manilow, Nicki Minaj, and an Elvis impersonator singing a four-hour medley of the Star-Spangled Banner and God Save the Queen. Bless their crooked little hearts. In other news, also coming from Canada this week, Global TV is reporting that gothic superstar Marilyn Manson was sucker-punched in the face by a complete stranger at a Denny's restaurant in Lethbridge, Alberta, after posing for a picture with two unidentified females. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up. Now, dear listeners, in case you're unfamiliar with this shock rocker, rumor has it that Marilyn Manson is the demonic love child of buxom Hollywood actress Marilyn Monroe and satanic cult leader and serial killer Charles Manson. He obviously <laughs> inherited the long, flowing blonde hair and ample bosom from his mother and the crazy, psychotic eyes and swastika forehead tattoo from his father, whom I understand he still visits in the Huskow from time to time. Anyways, back to the story in question. Manson claims that he was just minding his own business, doing random $500 a pop celebrity photo ops in open all-night breakfast joints, as industrial metal rock stars are known to do. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, some dude just comes up and wallops him right in the face in an unprovoked attack. Now, old Relic here has a, has a theory as to why all this happened. Now, normally, I, I don't really condone violence in any form, but, well, I figure some people just seem to have a face that lends itself to punching and well, I believe that Marilyn Manson is in possession of such a face. Personally, 
I don't think his attacker had any choice. It's, it's scientific, like pheromones in nature, that kind of thing. The newly formed black eye liner wearing Prince of the Underworld simply has a face that just cries out for being punched. And the story pretty much writes itself. And whatever the case may be, to make reparations to the alternative metal singer for this unfortunate fracas, this particular Denny's restaurant location will be renaming itself as Igahop, the International Gothic House of Pancakes. Would you like some more pancakes? <laughs> Would you like some more syrup? <laughs> Our last story of the evening comes from Tribute Online, reporting that on-screen Spider-Man couple Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield are going their separate ways after a three-year committed relationship. <coughs> This is very bad news coming from the web, if you catch my drift, as they seemed like quite a nice couple. You know, I even had a celebrity name already picked out for them, like Brangelina or Benifer. I was going to call them M. Gar Stonefield. But alas, it was not to be. Well, that's all we got for now, kids. It's Relic here with a soup can full of water slowly coming to a boil on the cast iron stove. Time to make me a nice cup of tea before retiring in the evening. And until next time, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. So there you go. Thanks to uh, Relic for that latest update. Uh, we will leave it there for this week, folks. Thanks uh, to our listeners and to Bahar, our caller, and our chatters. We will see you next week, same time, same place. Don't forget our health and wellness show tomorrow That's night. Tomorrow and next Saturday, The Truth Perspective, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Bye. See y'all.